that you would use me as a vessel of honor to declare your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Today we progress in the next But God in our series of the But God series. Um, Throughout the Bible, there are numerous but gods. And and we started in Genesis and and we just skipped a whole lot to Nehemiah. There's there's a few but gods in between, um, but it wasn't uh, my plan to cover every one of them because we would be here for quite a long time. I plan to do this for... Uh, uh, several weeks, but not for the long term. So with that said, in this next but God, we, we had transversed from Genesis, which looked at the origins and the beginnings of creation and God's people. And now we're much later in the history of Israel as a nation. The book of Nehemiah is written during a period in Israel's history called the post-exilic period. And so in order for you to understand the context of this book, I want to give you a little background. Uh, This was a period of great horror for the people of God. You see, Israel had been formed as a nation. We understand when God sent uh, um, called Abraham and, and said to him and made a covenant with him that I will make of you a great nation. And that great nation grew and developed in Egypt. And eventually, as they came under slavery, Moses delivered, uh, well, God delivered um, Israel through Moses. And we know that they came to form a nation in the land of Canaan, just as God had promised Abraham. For several hundreds of years, um, the nation would grow and develop, and under King David was established. But what followed after David would become centuries of apostasy and national spiritual decline. Um, And what we'll do is going to review a summary in our text today of Israel's history to some extent. Of course, you can't do through all the details. But the idea of Israel's history was that they started off not really on a good path, as we'll see as we develop the sermon and it was just sort of a vicious cycle of sin and, and apostasy and deliverance and repentance and sin and apostasy and deliverance and repentance. And this cycle just goes throughout all of history. And there just came a point that as the nation sunk deeper and deeper into apostasy, God kept good on his promise that he made in the book of Deuteronomy that he would eventually hand Israel over to her enemies. In fact, in 722 BC began the first wave when the northern tribes were conquered by the kingdom of Assyria, and that led to an exile of God's people in the northern kingdom to the Assyrian Empire. And then it led to a second conquest in 589 BC when the kingdom of Babylon would conquer the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was located, the temple. Um, It was when the southern kingdom was conquered, this was pretty much the end of Israel as a nation. And for 70 years, The land of Israel would be empty. It would be desolate. It would be vacant. God's people had been sent into exile, into foreign lands as punishment for centuries of apostasy and sin. This was a tragic time in Israel's history. It was a catastrophic loss for them on many levels. As we're watching TV and seeing the loss that suffered in Maui. You see the, the pictures of the cars on fire and the houses destroyed and people running into the sea. 
This is what happened in Jerusalem. The city was burned down. The temple was destroyed. People were covered in ash and taken as hostages to a foreign land. It was tragedy upon tragedy. And it was all because they had forsaken God. And as a result of forsaking God, they lost their national heritage, they lost their home, they lost their families, they lost their identity, they lost the temple, they lost all of it, gone. You see, they had lost the blessing of Yahweh because they lost their first love. They were idolaters, they worshipped false gods, and as a result, God gave them over. And it's not as if they were not warned. God sent his prophets, and the prophets warned them. Uh, The law, when God made a covenant with Israel, the law uh, said that if they were faithful, God would remain faithful to them. But if they forsook God, he would eventually forsake them. But it wouldn't be till centuries and centuries of long-suffering of God, of his people. Now, Nehemiah was a post-exilic prophet. What I mean by that is that the exile had reached its fulfillment. Ezra the priest had led three waves of Jews back to Jerusalem. They resettled the land. Nehemiah goes back and assists Ezra in the resettlement of Jerusalem, in the resettlement of, uh, of this region of Judea as it would become known under the uh, pagan empires. And it was not an easy time because Israel was still not a nation. They were able to go home. They were able to live in their land but they didn't have freedom. They were under the oppression and the authority of foreign pagan governments. Like colonies, they were. And, and in this imperial oversight, in this imperial time, it was very difficult. They had enemies without. They had enemies within. They had no walls for protection. And God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the walls as a symbol of God's protection and as a symbol of his presence and as a symbol of of, of keeping uh, God's people holy and keeping that which is unholy out. And it was during this time when the walls were complete that the Jewish people realized under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra that they, they needed to rededicate themselves to God. They needed to reassess their path with God. And in that time period, it was a time to reflect and look back and say, how did we get to where we are today? What happened in our lives? How, how did we get to this point in our life, in our nation, in, in, in our walk with God where we're just a disaster? This didn't happen overnight. And, and what we see here is in this chapter, the priests open up in prayer and, they, and this whole chapter of nine is a prayer to God. And in this prayer, it's a reflection. It's a reflection over the history of Israel and how they got to where they were. Now, I want you to think about that because all of God's word is meant to apply to us and how do we see this in our own lives? Because no doubt, like Israel, we have sinned and messed up and made many mistakes. And, and it, there comes a point in everybody's life where you sit down and you look at your life and you're not happy with the way things are. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care how good things are in your life. I'm sure if you sit down and really analyze, you say things could have been better if I had not done this, if I had done that instead. And when you go down memory lane, any one of us, and this happens particularly as people get older, right? The older you get, especially as you get to your twilight years, you look back over your life because you've got more years behind you than ahead of you. 
And you, you start to think, well, how did I get to where I am today? Well, there was a lot of, lot of, lot of screw-ups along the way. But counter to that and juxtaposed to that is the grace of God. And that's what we see here. We see this, this history of mess-ups and failures, but also a history of God's grace. It's amazing when we read the Old Testament, you know, we get this portrait sometimes, well, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, and he's bursting out in wrath, and the God of the New Testament is sweet Jesus, who's humble and lowly of heart, and, and, and people fail to see that the God of the Old Testament was very patient and long-suffering with the nation of Israel. And they failed to read the book of Revelation where Jesus is revealed as fire in his eyes with a sword wet with ready for the wrath of God coming on a white horse to judge the earth and, and where the streets are filled with blood, five cubits. I mean, we, we fail to see the full counsel of God, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is both just and holy and he's kind and gracious. It is the same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New Testament. And so when we look over our life and we look over where, what brought us to where we are, it brings us to the point of this sermon series, but God. Because if I go back over my life and look over all the, the failures and the sins, I could always say, but God was ready to forgive me. But God was merciful. But God was gracious. And that's the theme of today's sermon. So let's look at our text in the first five verses. It says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. And they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua and Bani and Kadmiel and Shebaniah and Bunai and Sherebiah and Bani and Shani. And they cried with a loud voice of the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petholiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I want you to see the mood of the people here today in this rededication. The mood was a sober mood. It was a mood that was all about God. It was a, a mood of let him increase, let us decrease. It was a mood of not pride and arrogance. And look at us, we finally built the wall, we built the temple, we're back, we're better than ever. We're um, the mighty Israel. It was a, it was a service of, of shame. It was a service of We've gotten to this point, but we're, we're ashamed of ourselves. We, they, they wore sackcloth and, 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 and put dust on their heads, which was a symbol of brokenness, of contrition, of, of, of just utter grief. Why be grieved when we're rebuilding the walls and we've succeeded? Grieved because we should have never had to rebuild them in the first place. If we had done what's right, the walls would have never came down. 
If our fathers and, and, our, and our ancestors had served God and worshipped him and weren't committing idolatry in, in, in ludicrous fashion, we wouldn't be even having this service today. It was, it was grieving to their souls. And in this, this turning point where revival was about to begin, you notice three things stand out. Three things stand out. They confessed their sins. There was prayer. They worshiped God. There was praise. And they read from the book of the law. There was God's word. Whenever there is going to be a turning point in our lives, whenever there's going to be a turning point in history, whether it's the turning point of a church, the turning point of an individual, of a nation, those three elements must be there. God's word, worship, and prayer. Those three elements must be there. There has to be a, a, a sense where God's word is the, is the catalyst of it all. Notice a quarter of the day they stood and listened to the word of God. Now I know every week, I know when I get to about the 12, 15 mark, everyone's looking at their watches. But just think of the place where these people were. They were eager to hear more of God's word. And the more they heard and the more they saw God's word point them out and show them where they failed, they confessed their sins. There was humility. There was brokenness. There was prayer. And there was worship and praise. There, this was not a time of, 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 of just feeling sorry for themselves. That's a false repentance. A false repentance is just to sit there and say, woe is me, the worm, the worm, the worm. We're, we're all worms. But no, it's to praise God. Notice, it's not about just feeling bad, but it's about saying, God, you are great, Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. You're exalted. You see, God is greater than our sin. We, we can't let our sin and our failures overwhelm us to the point where we, we make it such a big deal that we lose focus and we lose sight of who God is. And that's what the nation needed at that time. They need to focus on the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the abounding love of God. It's easy when you look at your past failures where it could overwhelm you and you feel bad. But we have to remember, but God is merciful. But God is gracious. But God is ready to forgive. And so as we get into this prayer, verse 6, it says, you are, and this is the prayer begins, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, you have and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in them, the seas, it's all that in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And so it begins with a declaration of, of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh being the God of creation, and, 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 and that everything that exists, exists because God made it to exist, and he sustains and he preserves all of it. We, it's, it's not only a prayer of acknowledging God's creative uh, of, uh, power, but recognizing his providence, that God is sustaining and ordering all things. He is sovereign over the universe he created. Reminds me of in Psalm 19 when the, the prayer that, that uh, is offered by David in Psalm 19, 1 through 3, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
We ought to uh, focus our prayers and recognize not only he's a God of creation, but he's also a God of special revelation. He's a God of election. He's a God of grace. Verse 7, for you, the Lord, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give him to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Oh, Lord. I love this text here because it, it, it's acknowledging the sovereign grace of God in choosing Abraham. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. He pulled him out of paganism. He was, a, he was an idolater himself. And God opened his eyes and, and made a covenant with him. And through him, God made a promise that he would give him the land of Canaan and he'd give him enough descendants to fill the whole world. And that through his seed, all nations will be blessed. And God is as good of his word. When he makes a promise, he intends to keep it. And he does. God is a God who is righteous. And because he's righteous, he does what's right. And he keeps his covenant. And he keeps his promises. Unlike man, we break our promises we break our covenants. We break our contracts. God never gives up. God never turns away. God never changes his heart or mind. We may be faithless, but God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And that leads us up to the next point, and that is Israel's early history. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. I want to stop right there for a moment. Notice that you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. The whole point of Israel's history is that so that God could make a name for himself it's about God not about Israel Israel exists to bring glory to God God doesn't exist to bring glory to Israel God's people exist we exist to bring him glory not so he can magnify us it's about him to make a great name and all the stories in the Bible are designed so that he may make a great name for himself. John Piper says this, God is making a great name for himself that his people can know, bank, and exult in him for thousands of years. A name, a character, a revelation of who he is and what he is like so that we may know him, trust him, and enjoy him. And so we know that God intervenes. He intervenes for Israel. And we see this. He hears their cries. He parts the Red Sea. He destroys Pharaoh. Verse 11, And you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea in dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. By a pillar of fire in the night for them, the way of which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them the commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. 
You know, it's amazing because this is a this is now capturing all the grace of God, all the good things of God. You delivered them by your hand. You overthrew Pharaoh. You parted the Red Sea. And notice that not only did they keep them warm by night with the pillar of fire, but he guided them by day by a pillar of smoke. But notice the grace of God in giving his law. God's law is a good thing. At this point in Israel's history, they had no idea of how to live and order their lives. All they've been knowing is that God exists and he's created and and, and all they knew is that the way of life in Egypt and worshiping all the pagan gods, and they had been completely just, just been brainwashed by that whole world system. God gave them a law to set a contrast. You should no longer be like them, but come out from among them. Do not do as they do, but do as I command you. Be ye holy as I am holy. And God's commandment is good, and it is holy, and it is just. God's law is a gift. It is a good thing. It's we who are the sinners. We're the rebels. It's not God's law that's bad. It's a good thing. It shows us how life is to be lived to the honor and glory of God. But what it does is it also shows us our failure. But that's a good thing because it points us to Christ. It points us to the need for grace. It points us to the gospel. God's law is good. It's a gift. It's grace. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock of the thirst and you told them to go and possess the land that you had sworn to them. As we get a picture here of of Israel's early years, its, its early history, the adolescent years of the nation of Israel. This is the origin. This is the, this is the story you go back to when you want to know how a, a Israel became the great nation that it is. And it all begins with God. It's all God's grace. It's all God's intervention. They, they did nothing for themselves. They were slaves. They were building mud bricks. They went from mud to mud. They had nothing. It was God who elevated them. And it's the same thing with us. Our story is the same. We come from mud. We go to mud. We were built from the dust of the ground. We return to the dust of the ground. We are nothing but sinners. We can do nothing in and of ourselves to elevate ourselves out of our sinful, wicked condition. We can do nothing to escape the judgment of God. Nothing to be righteous before the eyes of God. We offer God nothing but the filthy rags of our self-righteousness. And God says, I will make you clean and forgive you. It is only through his grace and through the gospel that we are anything. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. Now we shift the focus from God's goodness to Israel's rebellion. We know the story well because the story is a juxtaposition of God's grace, but also Israel was not a good group of people. Especially that first generation. They were a bad batch. They were a bad batch. Look what it says in verse 16 in describing this batch. They and our fathers, this is speaking of that generation, acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey your commandments. They do obey and were not mindful of the wonders you perform among them, but they stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive. 
Let me, let me just point out three terms that are used here to describe Israel's spiritual condition in those early years. Number one, it says they acted presumptuously. That, that term, or presumptuously, or presumptuous sin is, is referred to in the Old Testament as willful sin. Uh, uh, a sin that's not out of ignorance, but sin that is deliberate. It's a sin that says, I know this is wrong. God has showed me that it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's presumptuous sin. It's the most dangerous sin in the Bible because it's the sin that, that in the book of Leviticus says there's no, there's no atonement, there's no sacrifice for presumptuous sin. It's why David prayed in Psalm 19.13, hold back thy servant from presumptuous sin. It was something that David was terrified with. It is, it, is, it is the difference of saying, you know, manslaughter and murder in the first degree, right? If I get into a heated argument with someone and I, and I, I happen to hit them hard and they, they fall back and they hit their head on the ground and they die, I'll get convicted of first degree manslaughter. I didn't intend to kill the person. It was an accident. I was, I was in a rage. I was in a fit of passion and I, and I acted in, 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 in stupidity and I didn't intend to kill the person, but if I sit there plotting to kill you and I've planned out an elaborate scheme and I've poisoned your drink and, I, and I've uh, uh, prepared a, an alibi and I've made sure that you've died and, and covered all the evidence, that's presumptuous sin. It's when you deliberately plan, think through, and plot your rebellion against God. And this characterized that generation says they were stiff-necked, the second phrase. This word stiff-necked is used often in Exodus 32.9 after the golden calf incident, which is referred to in the next verse in Nehemiah. God was done with Israel. I mean, I mean think of this, and, and, and again, this is anthropomorphic because God was really through this, not done with Israel, but was testing Moses. But after the golden calf incident, after after. And if you think about it, it was horrible. Nehemiah says there, it was blasphemy. It was saying, here's our God that delivered us from Egypt. This image, this image of a golden cow. How wicked is that? The very gold that God gave you and he promised he would give you, you melt and say, this is our God. You turn the blessing into an idol. And it's with that where God said to Moses, these people are a stiff-necked people. Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And there we see the intercession of Moses. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, but you are a God. And notice, Moses says the exact same thing that's declared here in the but God. You are God, ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do not forsake them. And God says, I will not forsake them. Because of your prayer, Moses, I will be with them. I will go with you. Moses' intervention was not really about Moses changing the mind of God. It was God revealing his character to Moses and to the people of God, how gracious he is. Stephen used the same term, stiff-necked, in Acts 7.51, when the Pharisees were ready to kill him. He says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That word resist is critical there. Because the stiff neck, if anyone has dealt with any 
domesticated animals, whether it's a goat or a donkey or a horse or even a dog, you know when you put the collar around the animal and they don't want to listen to you, what do they do? They go, they stiffen their neck to resist you, right? It's basically saying, I refuse to follow you, I refuse to list you, and you see the animal go like this, I'm going to bend my neck, I will fight you tooth and nail. And that's exactly the word to describe Israel's early years. They were stiff-necked, they resisted and defied God at every turn. Isn't that exactly how it unfolded? The third thing it says, they were not mindful of the wonders that God had performed. They seen the glory of God displayed in these miracle signs and wonders, and still they resisted to the point that they even appointed a leader to say, bring us back to Egypt so that we can go back to slavery. I mean, you want to know how bad it is? Just look at Numbers 14, 1 through 4. If you want to turn to your Bibles, this is after, after they sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. They're only, they're only like a couple of months out of Egypt. They, they got the law. They, they've been preserved. At this point, they could have entered the land of Canaan, and it would have been, everything would have been great. But the 12 spies come back. Two spies say, let's go for it. God is with us, Joshua and Caleb. The other ten say, no, 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 no. This is a bad move. Those guys are big. They're Nephilim. We go in there. We're like grasshoppers. They're going to squash us. Let's, let's go back to Egypt. And guess what? The majority report won, of course. The whole nation was thrown into a panic. And listen to how they responded in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. It says, all the congregation raised a loud cry. This is six million people. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. How many people here are parents? Got, got parents here. You ever feel sometimes as parents that you've given all to your kids and sometimes they do not value and appreciate what you've done for them? You ever feel sometimes like, like no matter how good you've been to your kids, somehow they just don't see it. They think you're, they think you're the bad guy. This is exactly how God felt. Times 1,000, times 1 million, times 6 million, times 6 million souls who all rebelled and said, who, you did this to us. What kind of God are you? You brought us out here to die. We're going back to slavery. It was like spitting in the face of God. You know, it's a good thing none of us are God, right? Because if I was God, I would have just, I think I just would have zapped them all and killed them right there. But God is ready to forgive. God is, and that goes back to verse 17, but God you, but you, God, are ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
Verse 18, even when they made themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, they committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way and did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Hallelujah. And you did not withhold manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. In 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Think of the grace of God. Yes, they brought punishment upon themselves. That generation was condemned to die in the wilderness. They said to God, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. And God said, okay, you said I said that. You will die in the wilderness, each and every one of you. But your children will go into the land. But for those 40 years, God fed them, he clothed them, and he cared for them. Their feet did not swell, their shoes did not wear out. God did not forsake his people. But God is ready to forgive. The rest of Israel's history is a continuation. And I won't read through the whole chapter, but look at Look at towards the end, verses 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. I want you to think of this because despite how bad Israel was, God never forsook them. They went through some difficult times. But God loves his people. Jesus makes the same promise to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. There may be times in God's good wisdom, he may discipline us. There may be times where we reap the consequences of, the temporal consequences of sin. Right? You play with fire, you get burnt. That's just life. But God does not forsake you. He does not give up. We may have to go through the wilderness at times. We may have to go through times where we're just like, Lord, where, where are you? I feel alone. But God does not forsake us. You see, we have something better than the old covenant. We have the new covenant. We have Jesus Christ. Because for all our failures, all our mess-ups, for all our, our, our sins, and, and whether they're presumptuous sins or sins in ignorance, all of them have been placed upon the Son of God. And the wrath of God has been satisfied. There is no wrath for us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have averted wrath. We have avoided hell. And in Christ we have the fullness of life and forgiveness that he's bestowed upon us. And in spite of our mess-ups, we are still ahead of the game. We are not forsaken. But God is ready to forgive. But God is gracious. But God has steadfast love. I am amazed constantly by the grace of God. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These 
Bible stories are about God, but they also serve to us as lessons. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, they all ate the same spiritual drink, but they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's what we just read. Now look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them, or as it's written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, the good news is not only that we are under the new covenant of God's grace. We're not under law, we're under grace. But it's also good news that God has given us enabling grace empowering grace by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that as we look at the example of our forefathers, we say we don't have to live like that. Why? Because God has enabled us and equipped us to overcome temptation, to overcome sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder that there is temporal judgments for sin in this life. Don't go down these roads. God will not forsake you, but you will suffer. But instead, remember this, there is no temptation that you will encounter in this life that is not common to man. God is not going to give you more than you could bear, and he will always provide the way of escape. Don't ever say, I have no choice, I have to sin. There's no such thing as that. You blaspheme and make God a liar if you say that. Well, let me conclude. In this story today, in this text, Nehemiah and the children of Israel are rehearsing, they're reflecting upon their early history and their history as a nation, what brought them to where they are. And each one of us has a personal story, don't you? You have a story. You have a story what your life was like until Christ saved you. You have a story what those early years were like. You have a story where you are today. As you reflect upon your life and you see where you're at and you do a personal inventory, are you happy with where you are? Can you strive to be better? Can you strive for more holiness, more godliness? Listen, every single one of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, can do better. We rest in the grace of God. But that grace is not meant to lead us to complacency But the grace is to motivate us to strive for holy living, to strive for righteousness. As you look back over your life, you will see the failures. You'll see the mistakes. 
You'll see the idiot moves. But with that, you also see the grace of God. Thank God for the but God is ready to forgive. Thank God for the but God is being merciful, who has steadfast love and will not forsake his people. Every moment of your life, every milestone of sin, there is a milestone of grace that says, but God. Let's take two takeaways from this. The first is, as we look to the tragic history of Israel, it points us again to the greatest lesson, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because although they would commit themselves, they'd fail again and again and again. And that is because righteousness cannot be obtained through obedience to the law. Israel's history is a history of failure for a reason, to show us there is only one person who can keep the law. There is only one person through whom there is salvation under heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. You cannot, you cannot reform your life. You cannot be a better person and find acceptance with God. Acceptance with God, forgiveness with God can only be found through Jesus Christ. Your good works will not recommend you to God. Your good works will commend you to hell because they're tainted by sin and filth. You need Christ's righteousness. You need to believe in the gospel. Christ is the ultimate but God. And no matter how bad your previous life is, no matter how bad you've sinned, no matter how bad you messed up, remember, God is ready to forgive. Secondly, when we look at Israel here, we also see we see a lesson about national repentance and national restoration. Now, when we look at the Israel in the Old Testament, it's easy to associate it with our own national situation. We have apostasy on a grand scale here. We're, we're seeing a lot of similarities, but we cannot make an exact parallel comparison. Why? Because God made a covenant with Israel as a nation, and that covenant was inscribed in the Torah. God never made a covenant with the United States of America. We are not God's nation. We are a nation. We are a blessed nation. We're a nation that was founded by men, although imperfect, knew God's word. But we are not in covenant with God. There's a big difference with that. We are not, we are not God's chosen people. There's a lot of Christians who I think get that wrong. However, that does not mean we cannot see spiritual revival and restoration in our land. The question is, can we repent and have national revival like Israel did? Yes or no? Well, let me answer. Number one, because we are not like Israel in the covenant with God, God does not require national reformation. We, we do not have to bring us under the law of God. We do not have to have a theocracy. We are not here to build a messianic golden age in America. But what we are called is that as God's people, there is a clarion call that we would repent. The message is not for America, but for the churches in America. If the church isn't any nation to that matter, the church is a light to every nation. As the church thrives, the nation will thrive. If the church falls apart, the nation falls apart. Jesus says, you are the light and salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for what? The dung pile. Are we salty? Are we light? Are we preserving? Or are we 
contributing to the plunge of the United States of America. Second Chronicles 7.14 is often quoted, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Notice the emphasis, my people who are called by my name. God doesn't want the pagans out there. They're not called by his name. He wants us, God's people, that we would humble, that there would be a brokenness among the people of God. Forget about what's going on. They're sinners. They're going to sin. That's their nature. You'd be out there in the flood of it too if you were not saved. But look within. Where have we failed as God's people Humility, prayer, seeking the face of God, turning from our wicked ways. I believe that the reason why America is in the state it's in today is not because of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. They're just symptoms of the greater scourge of society. The problems of our society have to do with the people of God. When the church loses its way, when we lose our moral barometer, when we lose our influence, what good are we? My prayer is that for grace and truth and for every church in America to strive to do better. That we would repent, that we wouldn't just be content and complacent to make ourselves feel good by looking at how unholy and ungodly the world is, but that we would humble ourselves and repent before a holy God. And then, God's promise is, I'll bring healing to your land. I'm of a position that I think we've crossed that line, but we don't know the mind and the will of God. There is always hope. As long as we're alive, there is hope. And so let us pray. I I urge you as brothers and sisters, pray for the church, pray for grace and truth, pray for all of our sister churches, pray for revival, pray for repentance in our land. Oh, that God would heal our land for our children's sake and our children's children. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word we heard today. We pray, Father God, that we're reminded no matter how bad things are, no matter how dark is, but God is merciful. But God is ready to forgive. Thank you, Lord, that there is a but God in this situation. Thank you, Lord, that that it's never too late that, Lord, things are never too far gone, that you could always intervene. And we pray, Father, for your mercy and for your grace. We pray, Father, that we would acknowledge the goodness and grace of you in our lives. And that as we look at the milestones of grace, as we look at the milestones of your goodness, it would humble us and that we would love you more. Help us to love you more, Jesus. Restore to us the reality of you being our first love. In Christ's name, amen. What is the proper response to conviction of knowing that we